Amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and we are excited uh, to worship this morning together. Uh, if you've enjoyed the worship, say amen. amen. And if you don't say amen, you must have been sleeping. And so I don't know how that's possible, but uh, no, we're excited for the worship this morning. And just um, uh, there is nothing better than gathering together with God's people in, uh, in His church, with His church and worshiping Him together with our voices. Amen. Um, it is just a blessed opportunity we have. And I truly pray uh, that when you gather together with the body of Christ, it is not something we just, as I've already prayed this morning, that we just do. Um, man, we are creatures of habit, aren't we? Uh, some of you, how many of you love routine? You love routine. Same thing every day and you're good with that. Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you hate routine? Like you mess up other people's routines because you think it's funny. Raise your hand. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to see if there's any spouses on either side of that fence, okay? No, it's great to have routine. It's great to have this, you know, kind of normalcy. Um, there are many times we go through crazy seasons and you just want it to be normal, right? Just the same old, same old sometimes. But I'm telling you, there are times when it comes to worship and it comes to engaging Him, uh, even in our own personal devotional life. Uh, you ever just get done with a devotion and you think, what did I just read? Like, did I even interact with that material? Or just kind of like... Just read it and then move down to prayer. And then I, you know, on my phone, uh, if I do through version, they've got the plans and you can check that you read the devotion and you literally check you read the verse and then it bumps you to the next day. And every time I do it, I think, Lord, I really hope this is more than this. I hope I, I, hope I engaged more than just a check mark. But sometimes we can fall into those habits and those traps and we've got to be on guard against those things. Uh, sinfulness, open sin does not just come upon us in a moment, in an instant. Usually in my experience and just my understanding of it, it's usually a season of apathy that precedes a season of sin. It's usually when I've, I've kind of gotten just mundane in my worship. I've kind of just gotten lax in my interactions with him. I've kind of just fallen back into this same old, same old, and then I just get apathetic and indifferent to the things of God. Usually that leads us into a season of a sinful decision or sinful decisions. And my encouragement this morning is to be on guard against those things and to enjoy the worship that we can experience together as the body of Christ. And as we open up his word, the worship doesn't stop. Worship isn't something we just do before the message. Uh, that offering you gave this morning, that was an act of worship. Uh, the music that we sang this morning, act of worship. As we read from his word and we, we prepare our hearts to understand what he has for us by the work of the Holy Spirit, that is worship. In a little bit, we're going to come around this table and we're going to get intimate with one another. We're going to get involved in the communion. And as we take part of communion, that is worship. You see, worship goes beyond the walls of this church. Worship goes beyond brick and mortar. Worship is something that we are allowed to do because the Holy Spirit of God indwells us through the person of Jesus Christ. And we can go from this place and we can engage him and we can worship him beyond just even Sunday morning. And so this morning, I want us to really just kind of ask God, God, would you speak to me through this? Because the topic we're going to cover this morning might be one that you've studied, might be one that you've looked into, and you might have a temptation to think, been there, done that, and I've got the t-shirt. I've been there, I've done that, I've read all the books, I've done all this. I've always said to me, when I'm tempted with that kind of a mindset that I've just, oh, I've heard this before. And I remember the Apostle Paul's words at the end of his life. He says, can I just, I just want to know you, Lord, and I want to know your suffering. I just want to know you. I want to know your sufferings. I want to know the power of what it is to live a resurrected life. 
The Apostle Paul says that at the end of his life, 13 epistles, 10,000 miles by foot preaching the gospel, shipwrecked and beaten and imprisoned and all these things. And he says, man, God, can I just, I just want to know you. Man, if anybody could claim they knew him, it was the Apostle Paul. So why at the end of his life can he claim, Lord, I, there's more. There's more to know. And we end up sitting in church for 10, 20, 30 years, and we think, oh, I've got that figured out. And be on guard against that mindset this morning and ask God, Lord, speak to me through what you have for me. This morning, as we're continuing our series entitled, Who Am I? We are walking through the book of Ephesians and discovering that our true identity is either in Christ or in Adam. We are either in Christ or we are in Adam. Those where our identity lies. And I heard an illustration that I want to share this morning. I believe it's from Alistair Begg. And it was one that just I found so impactful, so powerful when, he, when I heard him sharing this. Now, I can't say it as cool as he can because if you know who he is, he's from Scotland. And I don't have an accent like that. So and if you've never heard of Alistair Begg and you want some good preaching, he's on, I know it's 90.7 every morning, every weekday morning. But you can just look up Awesome Pastor with Scottish Accent and you'll probably find <laughs> Alistair Begg. I mean, his, his preaching's okay, but his voice, I, that's really why I listen. It has, he, could be, he could be reading nursery rhymes for all I care. It's just good stuff. But he said this, and I thought it was so amazing. He said this, ask me to paint a portrait like Van Gogh, and I couldn't do it. If somebody brought you a blank canvas and said, I want you to recreate Van Gogh's work, you couldn't do it. If somebody brought you a stack of papers and said, I want you to write a play like Shakespeare can write a play. He says, I can't do it. It's beyond me. I can't do that. If someone said to you, live the life that Christ lived, you'd have to say, honestly, I can't do that. But what if the genius of Van Gogh could come and live in you? If the genius of Van Gogh could come and live in me, then I could paint a portrait like Van Gogh could. If the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write a play, write a drama like Shakespeare could. And the amazing truth is, if the person of Jesus Christ could come and live in me, then I could live the life that Christ has for me, live a life like Christ. You see, our true identity is in the person and work of Christ. If we don't understand, it starts and it ends in the person of Christ and his presence in our lives. We are not living the Christian life. We are living a moral, an external life of stop this and do more of that. Don't do any more of that, but do 10 more of those. That's what we can take the Christian life and, and kind of devalue it into. We can kind of bump it down to that low-level type of living where it's not the person and work of Christ living in and through me. It's me just trying to live this external, moral, good life. Where it's just externalism. It's just doing this stuff because I want to, to please other people. The truth is, the gospel is great news. Amen? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest news, and I cannot wait for Christmas. I mean, holidays are great. I know I, I want to show some love to, to Thanksgiving, okay? I don't want to jump over Thanksgiving. I know some of you, you get a little upset when apparently Christmas takes over Thanksgiving. I understand, okay? I will say this. I do find this week to be one of the most contradictory weeks in our culture, 
as Americans, and this is why. We spend all of day Thursday doing what? Sitting around a table, and what are we doing? Oh, thank you, Lord, for these many blessings. Did somebody say eating? Yes, yeah, so that's good. We eat, yes, okay. We, we get our eat on, you know what I'm saying? Um, there is going to be sweet potato pie at Thanksgiving. I've had confirmation that the sweet potato pie will be there. So as long as we've got some whipped cream to go with that, we'll be good. But we're going to sit around Thanksgiving afternoon, and we're going we're gonna to sit with family or friends and, or maybe just a couple individuals, and we're just going to say, Lord, before we take of this food, thank you for all the many blessings you've provided to us. Thank you for the ways in which you've watched over us this last year. Thank you for the food that is before us. But not only that, do you ever stop and say, Lord, thank you for the food in the pantry. Thank you for the food in the cupboard. Thank you for the food in the freezer in the kitchen. Thank you for the food in the freezer in the basement. Thank you for the food in the fridge in the kitchen. Some of you have extra freezers for extra food. Like that should blow your mind, that you have a whole separate freezer for just extra food. And we sit around like, oh, Lord. Now we need to be thankful for that. So we'll spend Thursday, and I love this season because we'll be so thankful. God, you're so good. And then we'll wake up Friday morning and we'll tackle little old ladies to get to that Xbox One or Xbox One Live. Amen. I mean, fist fights. Over this, Lord, thank you so much. But at five o'clock, I'm going to knock Betty out. Like if she gets in my way, like, (laughs) what? This week, I I tell you, every, every Thanksgiving week, I'm like, Lord, you must just look down and laugh at the foolishness you see before you. I'm not against Black Friday shopping, okay? I'm not. I'm just joking in a way. But it is a little frustrating to see how it's kind of taken over. But anyway, I find it interesting. But after Thanksgiving, what are we going to do? We're going to celebrate the, the first coming of Christ. When Christ came to this world and took on flesh and dwelt, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only glory of God. Man, the gospel, the angel announced that it's good tidings. And by the way, it's not just to all Baptists. And not just to all Americans. He says to all peoples. Every people group in this world needs to hear the gospel message. It is great news. But the gospel, being great news, is only great news if you understand the bad news. See, the gospel is great news, but it comes with bad news. You might say, what in the world is the bad news with the gospel? Well, the bad news is that you in your natural state only desire to sin against God, only desire to turn your back against him, and without the infusion of the gospel in your life, you are lost and undone. And you will pay for that sin with all of, in all of eternity in a place called hell. That's the bad news. But man, even in that sense, the bad news becomes really good news, doesn't it? Because when I'm aware of my sin, now I'm aware of the salvation that's possible, the grace that can cover my sin. And unfortunately, so many, even in churches, we've not really living, we're not really living the gospel message. We're living this external works type method. We just think do and do and do and do and do, and we're good. But here's the truth. When I receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and the person of Christ lives in me, now I'm able to live the abundant life. Now, let's, let's be fair here, because in Christianity today, and I don't want to get too far on this, but there's this kind of imagine a spectrum. There's those at this end that we would call legalists. These are those that are more concerned about what you wear and do and live and all this than even if you know Christ. These are the kind of churches that they don't want to know about your sin. They just want you to bury your sin, hide your sin, keep your sin secret so your image is protected and we look like a good church. That's legalism. Do all this stuff to make God happy with you. 
They would say you're saved by grace, but then they teach you to live as though you can lose it if you do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing or go to that movie or whatever. That's legalistic type thinking. Then the other side is called hyper-grace movements. This is where once you receive Christ, you can literally do whatever you want, and it doesn't matter. You live how you want. You say what you want. You do what you want. There's no expectations. And if you ever go to somebody and say, well, the Bible says that we should live in this way, they will say, you're being a legalist. You're putting law on me. But isn't it amazing how the Bible seems to take both those things and say, it is in Christ we're saved and we're redeemed in him and we live in him and it's grace-centered and it's not what we do. But James seems to say, but out of that should come this fruit. Jesus said, if you abide in me, there will be fruits. He says, if there's no fruit, you're not abiding in me. So we can't just go to one end or the other and say it's one or the other. The gospel is great news, but the truth is it comes with bad news that in my natural state, in Adam, all I desire is evil and sin and wrong. But in Christ, I'm set free from that, and my identity changes. It's not I can live differently because my identity is in Christ, not in Adam. We are in Christ, and that is even in affliction. As we learned last week, we know our identity, not our affliction identifies us. And if you missed last week, I encourage you to listen to that message because I, I pray it was a blessing to somebody that, that, man, when we live as Christ and we're in this world, affliction will come, many different forms. But we have to remember that in our affliction, that affliction does not define you. Your identity in Christ defines you. And it is that identity that will allow you to endure that affliction you're going through. In Christ, we will go through affliction. However, I want to continue to look at what Paul said. I want to go back to a passage that we read last week in a different way. I want to look at it this morning. Look at Ephesians 3.14. And I know we read this towards the end of the message last week. And I focus on the fact that Paul was praying for the church. He asked them, or really encouraged them, counseled them, admonished them, whatever word you want to use there. He said, don't lose heart. Don't faint at my tribulations for you. But then he spends verses 14 through 21 praying for them because he understands, I'm asking you to do this, but in your strength and in yourself, you can't do it. So I'm going to pray that God will give you the strength to not lose heart. So I want to read it again. Again, I know we read it last week, but would you just read along with me there, there in your hearts as I read aloud. Verse 14, for this cause... I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, verse 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him, that's not you, that's him, that's our Father. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, his power in us. Unto him be glory in the church by, or in, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. I know Greg prayed for us, but let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together and we pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to to live this life, this balanced life. Lord, I know that there's a wrestling in all of us that in the Christian faith there is a a pull to want to make it external and all about 
about this moral living, this external living, and just the do's and the don'ts. And if we're not careful, Lord, we can fall into that way of thinking and we end up living sacred and secular lives. We, we make Sunday and Wednesday as sacred and we do the good things there, but then the rest of the days are just ours to do with what we want. Lord, I pray that you would show us that in Christ that doesn't exist. That thinking is foreign to the New Testament. There is no living that is identified in that way in a good sense. But it is vital that we understand that we live in Christ. We walk, we breathe, we function in the person of Christ. Every day, every moment is for your glory. And Lord, as we are dwelt with your spirit, as we're abiding in you and just enjoying the relationship, Lord, from that you will produce fruits. From that you will lead us and guide us into decision-making and wisdom and how to do and not to do these things. Lord, I love what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church. The Corinthians cried out that all things were allowable. All things were doable. We could do whatever we want. And the Apostles Paul said, well, not all things are expedient. Not all things are good. And so, Lord, help us that have found the person of Christ that received him as our Savior to understand that just because something is allowable, it doesn't mean we should do it. And, Lord, I know that's tough to just lay out there, but I pray that we would, as James 1.5 says, that we would seek you for wisdom in that area and that you would show yourself to us in a way that would make sense to us, that we could live it or live this life in a way that honors you. Lord, thank you for your grace. I thank you that it is nothing in us that draws salvation, nothing in us that allows salvation to happen. It's all in you. And we are merely responding to what you've already done in our lives. We're, all, we're just responding to the cross. We're responding to your sacrifice, to your death, burial, resurrection. And so if there's someone here that hasn't done that, may they make that decision today to open their heart and by faith receive your grace, repenting of their sin and trusting in you. Lord, again, we want this to honor you in all these things. So help us in this area, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to see in this passage another great blessing that is gifted to us in Christ. We've talked about the fact that I am in Christ. If I know him as my Savior, therefore I have my new identity. I am afflicted, which we said last week is not a positive thing to think about, but we know that God can and will use those afflictions in our life for his glory. And then today I want to focus on the fact that I am heard. I am heard. Uh, Prayer is the key of what we're talking about today, and prayer is an amazing gift in Christ. The book of Ephesians deals heavily in the area of prayer. Roughly half of the book is prayer. It's prayer, prayer request, prayer reports. They're woven through the entire book. I love what one author said about this influence of prayer in the book of Ephesians. I listen to what he said. The big idea is that there is no such thing as a faithful Christian church without a praying Christian people. That prayer is what sustains the forward progress of the health and growth and life of the church. Man, that's good. The big idea here, this author says, is there's no such thing as a faithful Christian church without a praying Christian people. That prayer is what sustains the forward progress, health, growth, and life of the church. And this is why I love that our church has a desire to make prayer important. Uh, Not only do we pray here on Sunday mornings, and a little bit we're going to pray for invitation and have a time of reflection. Uh, Every Sunday morning, some of you know this, every Sunday morning we have our gap ministry. Uh, God answers prayers. There's a room right down the hall here, uh, just a small classroom. You can go in and spend as much time as you want in prayer before the service. 
uh, 9.45 or so, uh, all the way till service starts. You can go and pray and, and just ask God to direct your heart and your thoughts. Uh, Wednesday nights, we spend anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes in open free prayer where people can just pray as they feel led. And, and we believe as a church that Sunday morning is not the engine that drives the church. Some churches believe that, that, that this service drives the church, that what happens on Sunday morning sets the tone for the rest of the church. I truly believe that if we are going to be a Christ-centered church, then prayer has to be the engine that drives the church. Because I believe as we're praying individually and praying collectively, Christ is going to be central. His gospel is going to be central. His word is going to be central. It's all an overflow of that relationship that we have with him through prayer. So I want to see the power of prayer in our personal lives as well as the life of the church. And I want to walk through this idea by walking through the acronym of prayer. I know it's kind of a simple message this morning, but again, I pray that you would see the depths of prayer, the power in prayer. The first thing I want to talk about is the fact is that prayer is personal. Prayer is personal. Now, if you wrote down the acronym PRAYER, you've already figured out that every letter of prayer is going to be a point of the message. You've already counted how many letters are in the word prayer. <laughs> you've done the math and you figured out, well, let's say roughly 5 to 10 minutes per point, and it's 11.30. Okay, And fear, that's the feeling you had that came over you was fear, concern, worry. Um, I've said it before, when you come to church here, you always want to make sure you put the crock pot on low, right? That's right. Never high. Never put it on high before you come to church here. Now, I do want to move through here. And we are going to move quickly through these topics and this idea. And so I, I've said it every week, but I'll say it again. If you would like a copy of the notes for your own personal study, uh, we're more than willing to give that to you. Um, it's something I would love to give you if it would help you in your own personal walk. Um, just some thoughts to reflect over. But I want to talk about this idea that prayer is personal. You see in chapter 3, verse 14, the Apostle Paul writing to the Ephesian church says that I bow my knees unto the Father. I bow my knees uh, this is a very intimate time of open and real communication to God. Sometimes prayer is audible, words we speak. Sometimes prayer is silence. Sometimes it's with tears. And sometimes it's with smiles. But all the time, it's with a God that loves you and is holding on to you through Christ. Man, prayer is so intimate, isn't it? I mean, just be... Just be introspective for a moment. Just think over the times that you've really grown in your prayer life. I think of the times that you found yourself at just your wit's end and you had nothing else and no one else and you just fell on your face before him in your own private time. Maybe in a bedroom, maybe literally in a closet. Maybe you were at some place, not at your home, but just some other location. Maybe it was at a church and you just cried out to him. And you go back now, years later, and you think, that was that one of those anchor points in my Christian faith. Then that's when I really connected with God. And that's why I said last week, affliction is nothing that we look forward to. Affliction is not something that we desire. But what affliction and trials can do in our life, the strengths it gives us. What does James say about diverse temptations? How should we respond to those things? To be saddened by those things? He says, no, 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 no. Take joy in these things. Not because the trial is enjoyable, but because what the trial is doing in your life is enjoyable. What the trial is producing in you, what's it going to produce according to James 1? It's going to give us 
Patience is the King James word. Not saying a better translation, but another way to translate that word is endurance. So every trial we go through with joy in Christ gives us endurance. Why do we need endurance? Because when you get out of that trial, many of you know this, another one's coming. And God gives us strength and endurance every time. And so in prayer, we cry out to him. We bow our knees to him. We stand before him. We're intimate with him because we need him. Sometimes prayer is the greatest joys. I want you to think back, any moms and dads or grandparents, after that first grandchild was born, that first child was born, and in Christ, in that room, you took just a second and you just said, praise the Lord for this. God, thank you for your goodness. And that's a joy-centered prayer, but it's intimate. While prayer can be many things, there are a couple things that prayer is not. Prayer, believe it or not, depending on how long you've been in a Baptist church, prayer is not gossiping. And the laughter goes on. Because we know, you know those prayer meetings. Lord, I just, I need to, I need to ask for prayer for my husband. He's a bum. I mean, he's just sorry. He's lazy. Y'all need to pray for my husband. And, oh, sister, we're praying for you. Mm, amen. Praise the Lord. Some of you do that in your own personal prayer time. You don't say it out loud, but you pray to the Lord. You're like, Lord, you know my husband's a bum. You know. You need to fix him. And, again, I wonder, what's the Lord, like, in heaven going, like, have you looked in a mirror? Like, do you, do you, are you self-aware at all that you have your own issues? But we can do this in prayer, can't we? Y'all, would you pray for my neighbor? They're a mean individual. They're angry, always yelling. And, man, they borrowed my ladder six months ago, and they never brought it back. You need to pray for my neighbor that the Lord will just bless him and just take care. That's not really what you mean. You're just using it as a platform to kind of God. That's not prayer. Prayer is not gossiping. And again, you know how this works. We must also understand that prayer is not just talking to the ceiling, but to a real God. We understand that God is always listening to our prayers in Christ. Now, I will say this. When you are in Christ and you're crying out to him, I believe he always hears and he always answers. Amen? Some of you don't believe that. That's okay. Maybe by the end of the message you will. Uh, it's true, right? God always hears and God always answers if you're praying in Christ. True? Now, apart from Christ, if you're not saved, you're not in Christ, then I truly believe the prayer that he hears is the sinner's prayer when you cry out to him for repentance. I believe many people are praying and praying to God. And God, yes, being an infinite sovereign God, he hears it in the sense of he knows they're praying. But I don't believe he hears it as their loving and gracious heavenly father. I believe he hears it and his heart breaks because it's a, it's, it's a prayer of no faith. It's a prayer of no connection. It's a prayer of no relationship because they're still in their sin. And I believe God wants to work and wants to engage with that prayer. But I believe his own word bears out that he says, I'm not going to hear that. I'm not going to respond to that. Now, I think God gives us common grace, and God just is good to be good to those that are in Christ and out of Christ, to draw those outside of Christ to him. But, man, when we pray in Christ, we're going before your Father in heaven. And Paul says it is an intimate connection. He always answers. He doesn't always say yes, but he always answers. God might be silent or say no because of timing, the bigger picture, 
unrepentant sin in our life, us wanting to consume it with our own lusts, or because I am not treating my wife in a gracious and honoring way. So to husbands this morning, my challenge to you is if you're sitting there saying, I don't know why God is just, he's not seeming to answer my prayers, I would take a step back and say, according to Peter, in 1 Peter, he says, if you're not treating your wife this way, your prayers can be hindered. And so husbands, I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm just saying, have you even asked that question? Have you just assumed it's obviously not you, it's something else? Maybe it's stepping back and saying, Lord, how am I treating my wife? I've always said it, and I can't, I'm not going to really pick on the wives because I'm a husband, okay? But I can tell you one of the most challenging things I've ever heard as a husband in studying the Word of God and studying different passages, Francis Chan said it well. He said, husbands, the Bible says you should love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we always focus on gave himself for her, and we think, I would die for my wife. And that's great, but are you living in a way that loves your wife? Are you speaking in a way that loves your wife? And then he said this, the longer your wife is married to you, the more she should feel like she's married to Jesus Christ. I amend it outwardly. Inwardly, I was like, oh, oh, that, oh, that hurt. And I, I really didn't like it. Can we be real, men? Can we just be honest? Man, listen, you feel that weight, guys? The longer your wife is married to you, the more she should feel like she's married to Jesus Christ. I'm not perfect. There's been many days where I've had to go to Sandra and be like, I am so sorry I blew that. Man, I'm so sorry I said that in anger. And to me, it's just a weighty conviction, but it's good for us to feel that because that's what God has for us because when we feel that weight and we respond in faith and obedience to God's word, man, the blessings that come from that relationship in marriage. And so there's a lot involved in this. Why is God not hearing my prayers? Why is he not saying yes? It could very well just be timing. You could be praying the perfect thing, but at the wrong time, and he's going to say, not now. Not now. Which is spiritual to say not now, but he really means no for right now. And it may be no the rest of your life. You don't know. So what do we do when he says no or not now? We keep worshiping. We keep praising him and we keep trusting him because he's our good and loving heavenly father. So prayer is personal. The next thing I want to look at is prayer is relational. Prayer is relational. In Ephesians 3.15, it says here, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. This idea of family, this idea of connection. It's a relational thing when it comes to prayer. Not only we are a family with him through Christ in the sense of I am his son, he is my heavenly father. We are a family here as the church gathered together in the person of Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul is praying not just for a church, but he is praying for his family. We need to get that. Pray, Paul is praying for his family, not just a church, some church, this church. He's praying for his brothers and sisters who he loves. I love what one pastor said about this idea. We are a family, and what happens sometimes Particularly in the Western world, church is viewed as a purveyor of religious goods and services. And then people treat the church like it's a business, and they become customers and consumers, and get this now, critics and complainers. He says this to his church, we are not a business, we're a family. I had the blessed opportunity this week to go with two other men to sit in another man's kitchen 
and pray with this man before he had surgery on Thursday. Serious surgery. Uh, everything went excellent. Recovery is going very well. But I remember sitting there with these two men from our church and myself and this individual, and we're kind of sitting in this kitchen, and we're just talking about things, and then we prayed with him, and it was so amazing. We kind of went around the room, and, and every one of the guys was praying, and I'm there, and I'm, they said, okay, I'm going to start, and we're going to go down the line, and then you're going to end us. And I kind of wanted to be like, I don't even want to pray, guys. Can I just listen to you pray? I'll just keep my mouth shut, okay? And as we're going around this room, I was thinking, God, this is so amazing. This is the church, and Wednesday afternoon, sitting in this guy's kitchen, nothing special, no big grand thing. It was just Christian men coming together, and this guy was concerned, afflicted. It meant his surgery serious. I'm really nervous about it. I want to trust God, but I just, I'm kind of concerned. And, and we got to sit and pray with him. And then after we talked a little more, he said, man, everyone needs a family like this, a church family like this. And that's what it's all about. That's why we say prayer is relational. It's not just relational this way. It's relational this way as well. And we pray for each other because we're a church family. We're not just a place you go. And as that pastor said, we're not just a purveyor of religious goods and services to, that you can check off the box. Why well, I like the carpet, but I didn't like that first song. You laugh. Some of you have been in church long enough to know that's not just a joke. I know of a church that gives out a survey every six weeks that asks the people, how are we doing on these things? And it's literally like a customer service card. Now, I'm not opposed to interacting. I'm not opposed to having discussion. But here's the thing. We have no business deciding what this church will or won't be without first going, what does he say the church should be? We work from that on. We don't start with telling God, this is our design. This is our model. And then God will hope you bless it. Now listen, I'm all about interaction. I'm all about individual preferences and style. And it's all good and great to have conversation. I'm not saying that. But man, when it turns into this idea of it's just a consumer, like I just come in to get my needs met and I'm out the door. And if I don't like it, I'm just going to give you a bad review on Yelp or whatever. I mean, it's just silliness. By the way, that's happened. People will go on those things and give churches bad reviews. I mean, it's got to be a pretty messed up church to get a bad review, right? I mean, come on. When you think about this idea of a business versus a family, this is the difference. If church was a business, I tried to think of the best illustration I'd come up with. If church was a business, it would be like the grocery store where you just go to get those weekly needs and hope it doesn't cost too much. Mm, amen? Can you imagine praying for your grocery store? Lord, bless the vegetables this week with growth. Mm. May the bathrooms be pure and clean. <laughs> Could you, how silly is that, right? Nobody would pray for their, like, I mean, I know some of you super spiritual people, you're like, oh, brother, I pray for the oranges, okay? No, you don't, okay? Stop. <laughs> but prayer is more than just, just showing up here and bowing our heads and saying some words. It's relational. It's personal. Thirdly, prayer is asking Verse 16, if you look at it with me in Ephesians 3, it says that he would grant you. That he would grant you. He's requesting something of God. It is absolutely fine to make requests of God. He desires you to come to him with your needs as well as the needs of others. Paul actually makes three requests of the Father for the church, as we talked about last week. First, he knew they needed his supernatural strength to not lose hearts, for Christ to dwell in their hearts and to know 
the love of Christ. He actually makes three requests. That they would be strengthened and to not lose heart. That they would uh, allow Christ to dwell in their hearts. And they would know the love of Christ. We get the first one. That kind of makes sense. But what does Paul mean about Christ dwelling in their hearts? I mean, after all, these are already Christians. What does he mean by dwelling in their hearts? Once we're in Christ, he's always with us. He never leaves us or forsakes us, forsakes us as Renee saying so well. So what is he referring to here when he says dwell in your hearts? I truly believe Paul's referring to the idea of Christ abiding in them and with them. One commentator said it this way, Jesus dwells in us through the person and the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that God wants our life to be his home. Jesus wants to move into your life, and he's going to start working on all of it. Anybody ever move into a fixer-upper? You moved into a fixer-upper. Raise your hand. How many of you still have projects you're working on? How many of you think the projects will never end? Amen. Amen. Man, when you moved into that home, you weren't happy with everything you saw, right? You liked maybe the, the basis of it. You liked the idea. You liked the property. You like this or that, but you're like, man, I really would like to change this, and I think we can get better use out of this. And so when you moved in, you didn't start tackling every project right away, right? Number one, because you'd be broke, right? Like, you got to think, like, I don't have money for all that. But you started game planning. Okay, we're going to start here, and this is kind of the most immediate need. we got to get the bedrooms figured out, right? If you're, if you're newly married and you buy a fixer-upper, make sure your wife has a nice bedroom, a bathroom that she can use, and make sure the kitchen's good to use, okay? I'm just telling you, life will go easier. Just believe me on this, okay? But as you're working, these are the immediate things. i got to take care of this, so there's a plumbing issue. i got to take care of that because I want water to leak. But you kind of looked beyond that, didn't you? You kind of looked down the road and said, well, maybe three, four years from now we'll tackle this because that would be kind of nice, and I see the potential in this and the potential in that. Can we imagine our spiritual life in a similar way? That when Jesus Christ took up residence in our hearts and in our minds, he moved in and he took residence and it was immediate. And he said, you are already the finished product in my eyes. But were you done being worked on when you got saved? No. How many of you spiritually will admit, I know this is tough, it's church. How many of you would admit spiritually there's some projects he's still working on? Raise your hand. How many of you think the projects will keep going on and on and on and on and on? Yeah, Amen. But see, he sees the potential. He knows what can be. So he started this work in you, Paul says in the book of Philippians, verse one, chapter 1, verse 6. He says, this work which Christ began in you, he will complete it. So you can feel like the project's never ending. Can I give you a word of encouragement? He is working on you. And he is fixing you up. And he, yes, he already sees the finished product, but he's doing little by little. So what does Paul mean by dwelling in our hearts? He's saying, man, would you just allow Christ to continue to abide with you and you with him? Let him keep working on you. Surrender to him. Because I'm telling you, as you allow that to take place in your life, you will see greater and greater joy and peace. You see, prayer is asking, and Paul openly asked three things of the Lord for the church. Next, moving quickly, verse 19. Verse 19 says this, And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Prayer is asking, but prayer is also yearning. Prayer is yearning. Paul's third request is that he desires them to know the love of God personally and intimately, which leads to an inward yearning for the person of Christ. 
There is in and through prayer a hunger in our souls, a thirst that cannot be quenched except by being with him. Yearning is to desire something strongly, to crave it, to crave it. And if I asked you honestly, self-evaluation, to be honest, is that how you would describe your prayer life? Would you describe your time with him as something you crave so strongly that when something tries to rise up against it, it's no comparison? Because your soul is just crying out, I need this time with him. I believe Paul's basis or his, his reasoning behind this plea for our yearning to grow, our passions to grow, is right on when he says it's in the measureless love of God. When you understand the measureless love of God, to any extent it will consume us with a desire, with a hunger for his presence. Prayer is yearning. Two more things. Two more things. Prayer is expecting. Prayer is expecting. Verse 20. We read this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. We really kind of hammered this verse. But verse 20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Prayer is expecting. It says here that we can be able to expect. You know he is able. We approach prayer with great expectation, believing he can do whatever he so pleases to do according to his will. Remember, if we pray in Jesus' name, it will happen if it is according to his will. Our prayers not being answered have nothing to do with God's ability but with our ignorance of what really needs to be prayed for in that moment. I think this is true in my life, and it's true in some of the studying I've done. I believe this is true. A prayer being answered with a no has nothing to do with God's ability. It has everything to do with our ignorance to ask for the appropriate thing in that moment through prayer. And you might say, that sounds really harsh. I'll be honest, I've prayed some ignorant prayers based on my lack of understanding timing, lack of understanding what his will might be in that moment, because I'm a finite created being with a created mind that is not an infinitely sovereign God. And so I pray wrong things. I ask for silly things. I pray the wrong things. And I don't think God is mad at me for praying those things. I think he loves when we pray a prayer of faith in Christ, but I also believe he's going to say, no, because you don't see the big picture. You're ignorant, lacking knowledge of all of this, and so I have to say no here so I can say yes over here. Isn't that awesome? You have, the prayer you just started praying today, whatever it is, God's been working on that prayer request for months or years, preparing things, ordering things, structuring things, so that six months from now when he says yes, it'll come to be, and he's been working on it for years. And that's the kind of God that we worship. And so when we expect things from God, that's good. But we don't get mad when it doesn't happen because his ability should never be our question. Also, don't beat yourself up if you struggle in this area. Don't beat yourself up. That's another thing we do as Christians. We're so good at beating ourselves up and tearing ourselves down. We all do or have to some degree understand we struggle with this area. Do you really believe he is able? Well, if you struggle with that, then ask him, God, Be with my unbelief. Help my unbelief. There's no such thing as perfect faith. Humanly speaking, there's no such thing as perfect faith. Everyone in this room will have doubts. Maybe right now you don't have a lot of doubts, but you may. And so what do you do? You're honest about them. Last thing, quickly, is we got to wrap up. Verse 21, I truly believe that prayer is revealing. Prayer is revealing. 
Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. I've said this before. What does amen mean? Amen is kind of like verily, verily at the beginning or at the end. At the beginning of many things, Jesus would say verily, verily. What does that really mean? It's kind of like saying, listen, listen, really important. I want you to do what I'm asking you to do. I want you to do what I'm going to tell you to do, or you need to do this. This is really important. Listen, listen. Amen is saying, so shall it be, and let it go forth. Verily, verily. Listen, listen. Amen. Now go do it. Let it happen. So what is Paul saying here? This prayer, why does he end it this way? He's saying, man, this prayer for the glory of God through the church goes beyond ages, goes beyond anything temporal. It needs to continue. It needs to go forth. Paul reminds us again, as we said last week, it's all about the glory of God. So again, another question we can ask ourselves in this area of prayer. When you pray, whose glory are you about? Whose glory am I about? When we pray, it reveals to us our true desires because God is working in prayer. Since prayer is personal, we are aware if we are choosing our glory or his. Quick note I want to give you guys just some kind of information to think on studying. The Bible speaks of glory in our English Bible about 275 times. It is a massive, mega theme of Scripture. And it means the splendor, beauty, magnificence, radiance, heaviness, weightiness, prominence, preeminence, splendor, majesty, holiness, purity, worthiness, and superiority of the God of the Bible. And so when we pray, what is revealed to us? What is the glory in our life? Who do we live for? What do we live for? Why are we here? What are we doing? And what's the point of it all? Is it to reflect my glory? Or is it to reflect his glory? Is it to put my glory on display? Or is it to show his unfathomable glory to the world around me? When we pray, it is revealing, and our hearts will be open. And then the question is, if we know whose glory we're living for, if it's anything other than his, are we willing to make a change by his grace? Am I willing to submit to him and say, I need to live for your glory and yours alone? I'm going to ask you to do this this morning. We're going to close this part of the service in a time of invitation. And so I'm going to ask you right there where you are to bow your heads and to begin to ask him these questions. Do you believe he is able Do you believe he can do all things? Do you trust when he says no or not now that he is still good? When you can't see his hand moving in a situation, do you trust his heart? Are you about your glory or his? I know as you bow your heads right there where you are and begin to pray, I know these are tough questions. I know they take a lot of thought and evaluation and personal reflection But I want to encourage you today that when we will realize that everything we said today is based in the measureless love of God, that in Christ I can know him and be known by him, and I can know his love, and prayer is an overflow of that relationship. It's personal. It's relational. Yes, it's even asking of him and coming before him with needs, and it's trusting him when those needs aren't answered the way I want them to. It's revealing to us where our hearts and our minds are. So I want to encourage you this morning, would you just spend some time with him? 
Lord, in my prayer life, am I yearning for you? Am I truly desiring your presence more than anything else? Do I hunger and crave that time with you? Because if your answer is, I just don't know, then it can't be driven by law. It can't be driven by trying to make God happy per se. It has to be driven by God, because of your love for me and because you've saved me right where I was, while I was yet a sinner, Christ, you died for me. And I receive you as my Savior, repenting of my sins. And out of that, I just, I, I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you in prayer. But there are so many distractions. Even good things can become distractions to that, that yearning that we have for him and for, for that time. And so maybe we just need to make a choice on priority and discipline ourselves and say, no, I'm going to set a time and this is the time I'm going to spend with him every day because I just want to be with him. Whatever it is for you this morning, would you just respond to him? Maybe God is speaking to you about something that I didn't even talk about today, something that wasn't even in the sermon or on the radar, but it's something on your heart. Maybe you want to come and pray. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. When we do... I'm going to ask you to come and bend a knee to just spend some time with him. There'll be a couple people up front here that would love to pray with you if you desire to do that. Or maybe you want to come and pray and just say, God, would you work in this situation or help me here or help my unbelief or Lord, help me to grow in my desire for you. Whatever it is, would you just respond to him? And if you don't know Christ, maybe today, right now, you would just say, Lord, I'm tired of running. I believe you can do all things and I believe you can forgive me for my sins. I repent and I trust in you as Savior. Whatever God is doing, would you respond to him? Lord, bless now this time of invitation. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? As you just spend a moment there, we're gonna sing just a verse and a chorus of this song, just a verse and a chorus of this song and then we're gonna go to invitation. But maybe while we sing, you'd wanna come. Have you lost the heart of worship? because it's just coming back to that simplicity of, Lord, it's about you. Would you respond this morning as we sing?